Alexisunas, and welcome back to the ESPN Formula One podcast. We have a slightly different episode planned for today as we have our first official guest, and it's none other than Juan Manuel Correa, the Formula Two driver who in Spa 2019 had life-changing injuries after a collision on the track tragically claimed the life of Formula Two driver Antoine Hubert. Juan Manuel is here to tell his story about his journey from karting to Formula 2, the accident in Spa, and his amazing progress in recovery. Juan, thank you so much for, for joining us. Of course, we're just going to chat a bit about pretty much the last year that you've had, which has just been, I guess we could say a life-changing year, you know, for better and for worse. But I've seen some of the amazing stuff that you've been doing, some of the progress that you've been making. Um, so we definitely want to, want to touch on that. But first, let's just find out how you, how you've been, especially now it's, you know, crazy times with this pandemic. Everyone's stuck inside and just wondering, you know, what, what's going to happen day in, day out. So how have you been, um, over there in Miami? Yeah, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, this is, I think, only my second podcast ever, so um, pretty cool. Uh, and, and yeah, like, like you said, it has been a very crazy um, last eight months for me. First of all, with, uh, with the accident that kind of changed my, my world around from one day to another. And now with this pandemic combined, I feel, I feel like um, I'm sort of in, in a very strange place. You know, it's it's all very very weird, and it feels almost not realistic. Uh, but but I'm doing well. I'm I'm at home. I'm with my family, um, and and I think that's important. You know, I wouldn't want to be alone uh, with all this isolation. I, I have friends that are alone in an apartment at the moment, and they're not having a good time. So uh, it could be worse. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, obviously you're an athlete, a professional athlete, you know. Um, and one of the things that we've been you know talking to professional athletes about is just how they're still able to maintain some sort of like a training session um even in these times especially not being able to go out i know of course it's a bit different with you because you're still in rehab and still recovering from that horrible crash but um what's it what have you i suppose been doing to establish that routine to i suppose make it feel kind of normal for you um yeah you know for me as, as a racing driver we travel so much during during the season that we're kind of used to training on the go and like in my case like I was able to do a full like workout and have a program to do like in hotel rooms so um, in that sense it's pretty easy actually for me to train anywhere I, I just need you know a couple bands my neck device and stuff like that and, and then I'm good to go so that that really hasn't been an issue I think what's been the biggest issue for me is obviously my rehab um, for that I need to do it with special people, you know, my, I have people that are doing the rehab with me and that, that's really necessary. So in that sense, it has been difficult because I've had to kind of learn to do it by myself. Uh, but I've actually started this week to get, um, my, my therapist to come to, to my house with mask, gloves and, and everything, but, uh, to, to just help me out because I don't want to lose, uh, more time because obviously doing the, the rehab by myself is not the same as having someone, you know, work on, on your scar tissue and stuff like that. So, I'm having him come here. And I know you've been, um, of course, keeping busy, at least in the virtual aspect, you know, getting some racing in virtually, as it seems like everybody has been, no matter if they're, you know, parts of motor racing or not. So uh, just tell us a bit more about that and what you've been up to. 
Yeah, no, that's been really awesome. Um, and, and something that I didn't expect was going to be possible um, after my accident. So I'm lucky enough that I'm able to drive using just my left leg. Uh, and with that, I've kind of been able to stay uh, relevant and in a way stay active. You know, uh, simulators are not the same as, as real racing and real driving. But in my opinion, they, they're good enough to keep you somewhat mentally mentally active and, and kind of in, in the racing mood. Um, so, so that's been really good for me. And in, in a way, I think this whole uh, virus has been slightly positive in, in that sense for me because it allows me to be doing the same thing that people in, in, you know, the people I was racing against and the people that I was supposed to be losing a year with this year because they were going to be racing and not me. And actually we're doing the same things. So that's, and, and, you know, I'm just very lucky about that and I'm trying to make the best out of it. A small victory. I know I had seen that you said that just using the, the left leg, of course, in the simulator can get a bit tiresome. It's a lot of work there, but has it gotten any easier? Or are you still trying to get the hang of it? No, it's, it's definitely improved. You know, the, the first few times I, I tried it a couple months ago, my left leg was so weak that even just to, to do both things with the left leg, you know, I would finish so tired and my leg would hurt and, you know, it wasn't comfortable. Uh, but now I'm at a stage where I can drive with without problems and, and I can do long runs and everything so and and as well the the technical aspect it was obviously difficult to get used to uh pushing the throttle with the left leg that was the first time ever in my life that I, that I did it uh but with practice uh it, it has definitely improved and I think I'm at a decent uh, performance level right now at least to to be there in the mix you know I don't think I'm going to be winning races anytime soon but to have fun and to stay relevant it's uh, it's enough and I saw in terms of, like you said, small victories and whatnot, um, I saw your post on Instagram just yesterday, which is brilliant. I know you said that you don't think this counts as walking, but I mean, shoot, we're going to take it as walking. That was amazing. Yeah, thank you. It was, it was really unexpected. I was, uh, it was the first time I tried anything close to that. But, you know, I was just feeling good and I, I felt stable and I said, you know, let's, let's go for it. And yeah, I, I walked, I think, was like three or four meters. Um, probably the longest three meters of my life, but you know, it's, for me, it's really important because it's the first time I'm able to just move vertically, uh, with, without any support or anything like that. So even though it was kind of like bunny hops and I couldn't put so much weight on the right leg, um, it's, it's still progress. And for me, that's really, really important. Of course, since, you know, our podcast is still fairly kind of new and, um, you know, we may have some listeners that just may pop in and want to get to know you more, of course. Uh, so we definitely want to take it back to just how you started in motor racing, how, you know, a boy from Ecuador moved to Miami and got it. I had to throw in the Ecuador because you're my fellow Latino. That's good to see some Latino power, of course. You're Latina. Yeah, yeah well, my mom's from El Salvador, so I'm like Latina Jamaicana. So a bit of both. But it's always good to see, you know, Latinos doing well, of course. And um, so just tell me how, you know, because I know you said you started motor racing from you were like about seven right or you started at least in the sports or in the process of it yeah, yeah. so um i was born in, in ecuador um and i started karting in, in in ecuador as well so that's how i got into it through my father you know he was always into motorcycles then he went on to race uh, rally in, in ecuador and through the rally he met people in, in go-karts and that's how i got into it uh, and, and I raced in Ecuador until I was 11. So nearly the first four years of, of my career were there. I won a couple of uh, national championships and I did really well there. 
Uh, and then in 2010, we moved to, to Miami, my, my family. Not, not for my racing, for, for personal reasons, but that kind of um, helped my career in a way because I started racing over here. And obviously the level is, is much higher here in, in the USA. Eventually, I went on to win the national championship here. And that same year, I won the world championship of, of karting. Um, this was in 2013. And after winning that world championship, that's what kind of put me on the on the world scene and, and made me go to Europe, which has the, the highest level out of everywhere um, in, in karting and, and formula cars as well. And that's kind of where my career took off in, in Europe. And I was based in Europe since 2014 until eight months ago when I had my crash and, and kind of just making it up the ranks in, in Europe in between karting, then Formula 4, GP3, and eventually Formula 2. And then now, of course, that when you, you know, look back, I'm sure you're making a bunch of people um, in Ecuador very proud, of course. What's the racing scene like there now? Do you feel like um, it, it's kind of taken off a bit more? Um, not not really. I, I think the, the racing is uh, very, very small. And, of course, racing is an expensive sport, you know, so... For it's not like a, an accessible sport as a as a Sunday hobby for most people, especially in a very poor country like Ecuador and in general, general in, in Latin America, there there's not a lot of racing, unfortunately. But I think I've definitely helped grown the um, kind of the fan base and and kind of re-sparked the interest. You know, I think motor racing in Ecuador was very strong, or at least much stronger than now probably 20, 30 years ago. And I, I'm trying to kind of bring that interest back because for me, it's important, first of all, that as a country, they, they, they follow such a, for you know, in my opinion, it's a very, very nice sport. I love it, obviously. Uh, but I also think that even if it's just a couple kids that, that have a dream like, like I did, you know, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, um, maybe that could be the difference between having another Ecuadorian come up through the ranks or not in the future. And, you know, that, that's what I keep telling people there. You just need one kid with a lot of talent and a bit of luck to, to make it. Uh, and, and that's a bit, you know, my story, you know, I, I kind of use my example of, you know, if, if I could make it and uh, to where I am today, then why not you? And, and that's what I try to, to tell my people over there. And just like thinking of your progression, of course, like you said, and, and I mean, you said it perfectly in the fact that, um, motorsports, you know, racing of any kind, I suppose is not a cheap thing. It's not, you know, easy to probably convince your parents week in, week out to buy into, to that dream. So for you, did you always know and did your family always know that this is it? This is what he wants to do. This is what he has to do. And then that progression, like you said, from Ecuador to Miami to Europe and back, did it just come naturally then? Like no questions asked? Uh, no, definitely it was, it was never, um, Kind of like in the movies when you see, you know, a kid and, and his dreams are planned out and everything goes perfectly. That's not how it how it works in real life, um, and, and definitely not for me. So, I think in the beginning it was more my dad getting me into it as a hobby, uh, so he could just spend more time with me. You know, it, it it was kind of the sport that formed our our father and son bond, and it, it was good fun. You know, uh, but but eventually I I started getting more passionate about it and the roles kind of changed and I became the one who was pushing my dad to to keep supporting me and you know I, I was the, the guy who told him to take me to Europe and to take me to the USA to race and to do all these things 
Um, and I was just lucky enough that, that he agreed, you know, and he, he was always kind of agreeing, um, as long as I was putting in the effort, you know, he said, you know, as long as you take this seriously and show me that, that you're working for it and that you, you're gonna earn it, then I will keep supporting you. And I was very lucky in that sense, but I also had to, to work for it. And, and I think he did the right thing, you know, because you also get a lot of kids who is actually the father who has the dream and not really the kid. Um, and you see that in every sport and at the end they, they don't really make it anywhere. Cause if, if you don't have the passion yourself, you're not really gonna, gonna get there. So, um, yeah, I, I, I was lucky. I was lucky. And I was one of the few people that had always the, the unconditional support from my parents, but I had to work for that support as well. And you're still super, you know, well, I don't want to say super, but you still are quite young, of course. So probably some of your idols are actually still racing right now. But who are, you know, some of the guys that like you looked up to that just helped, you know, or just helped further cement that this is exactly where you wanted to be and what you wanted to do? Yeah, there is a number of, of drivers that obviously I, I saw through the years. So kind of my earliest memories are of uh, Michael Schumacher in the Ferrari. So that was, I think, 2005, six. Um, and then it, it became people like Fernando Alonso, uh, Lewis Hamilton, who's still racing up, up to now. Um, then came the Vettel era and, you know, just a number of figures. But, but really what I, what have all, has always inspired me the most is, is just the sport itself, you know, and, and how the sport works, the cars, the, the speed, the technology that it has. And that's really what, um, gave me that, that passion inside. So I never had like one idol in particular. Uh, it was more just like the love and, and the, the idea of driving those cars myself. And you mentioned, um, Lewis Hamilton. Of course, we have to stick a pin there because, you know, it, this would have been such a great year for him. It still could be a great year for him. He's chasing down that record. What do you think just makes him Lewis Hamilton? Like, I mean, I, I'm sure you must have you know, come across him a couple of times already or at least once, but what do you think makes him just so, so dominant? I think he's just a really good combination of raw talent and, and, uh, smart, you know, um, you get many drivers who are very smart and, and, you know, have the brain to, to be great, but sometimes they don't have the, the raw speed and talent and you get drivers who have a lot of raw speed and a lot of talent but they're not smart enough to, to use it well. And, and I think Lewis is kind of, um, the, the best combination out of both. And, and that's really important. Um, as well as, you know, he's, I, I don't say he's got lucky, but he, he has been in the right moment at the right time, you know, with, with Mercedes. And obviously they've had a very strong, um, six years. I think it's been now that, that, that they've been dominant. So that, that doesn't hurt at all. Um, but no, he, he's been undoubtedly the, the strongest driver of this decade, in my opinion. And you can just see that by the way he's beaten his teammates through, throughout the seasons. That's, you know, no one can take that away from him. And, and I think also he's been really, really smart in the, the brand he has created for himself and, and how he's helping F1, uh, globalize. Uh, you know, many people don't realize that, but he, he's, He's a celebrity, a worldwide celebrity, more than any other driver. And that at the end benefits all of us drivers and, and the sport as well. So it's really good for everyone. Definitely. Because I think, um, like you said, I mean, hopefully you've definitely inspired a couple of people in Ecuador or in Latin America to do it. I grew up in Jamaica and 
the one person everyone always knew is Lewis Hamilton, of course. We know his yeah. Caribbean roots, so he's definitely helped for that Formula One, definitely is growing. In the States, though, I know IndyCar is, like, pretty massive as well there. So is there a reason why you didn't kind of, I guess, get tempted to go into that before making the leap all the way to Europe? Um, I, I guess because my dream started in Ecuador and my dream was always Formula One. So when, when I started uh, a racing, I didn't even know what IndyCar was. All, all we knew in Ecuador was F1. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think that that really kind of paved my, 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 my path. And um, I, I've had some interest from, from IndyCar and those series here in the U.S. because they're looking for, for young drivers, especially drivers that are in Europe. They're trying to kind of steal a bit of the, the pool of talent from, from F1. Which is normal, and and it's cool because you know it, it opens your 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 eyes as well as a driver, and it's definitely not something that I've discarded, you know, to come back and and come and go to IndyCar or endurance or other categories. There's there's a lot of great categories out there, um, but we'll see, we'll see. At the moment, um, I, I was on my way to F1, and and that was really my only focus. But in the future, who knows? And in terms of the racing circuits in 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 Europe. What is it about it that, that I suppose appealed to you the most? Um, it, to be honest, it was not the race circuits that, that appealed to me. It was the, the drivers. Um, so, so the level, you know. If in the U.S. you have, let's say, in a national championship race, you have maybe five people that can win the race and are very, very good. In Europe, you will have 15 or 20 people that are at that level. So it really you need to step your game up uh, if you want to be fighting in the front. Um, and, and also, like I said, if your dream is to get into F1, all the people that are watching the young pool of, of drivers come through, they're watching Europe um, karting. They're not watching karting in the US or anywhere else. So you need to become relevant. You have to put yourself in, in those categories. And that's what really appealed to me. And then what was the experience like in Europe? Because, of course, you went over so young and, you know, chasing this dream. And like you said, it's not, it's not you know, an easy thing to get the family on board on as well and to completely jump an ocean over. So what was your experience like in Europe? Yeah, it was very difficult convincing my parents to let me go. So, like I was saying, in 2013, I won the world championship in, in karting. And uh, I had a contract offered to me to go race in, in Europe, which was my dream. But the condition was I had to live in Europe. Um, so to convince my parents to let uh, this 14-year-old kid go live in Europe by himself was, was definitely not easy. Um, but eventually, you know, they, they, they knew if they didn't let me go that I would never forgive them. <laughs> so they had no choice in a way. Um, and, and, you know, it was a very hard experience. Um, because I, I didn't speak the language. I, I was in Italy in the beginning. I was living alone. I had to do school online in, in the beginning. And, you know, everything was, was a lot to take in. And, and I had to grow up really quickly. So it, it definitely had its its very tough um, side to it. But, but at the same time, it kind of made me into the person I am today. And really for my career, it was definitely the best thing I, I could have done. So... Um, yeah, I, I just, I wouldn't change anything of, of how, how I did things back then. And then now let's just, um, I suppose fast forward to Formula 2 now, last year, which was your first official full year, wasn't it? It was my first year at all in, in Formula yeah. 2. Yeah. 
So that was, I mean, when you first started, just what was the the feelings like, the emotions like? Because like you said, it's just that much closer to the actual dream, which is Formula One. Mm. Yeah, it was, it was very cool. It was very, very cool. It, it kind of felt in a way like I had achieved already a small part of, of my dream. Because um, everyone knows that to get to F1, nowadays you have to go through F2. Um, so to be one of those 20 drivers in F2, and that meaning that you're in the next pool that, that are going to get selected to go up to F1, that, that was a big deal for me. And, and I was very proud to, to be there. Uh, as well as my family, you know, we, we felt like all the hard work we did was was kind of paying off in a way. And, um, I, you know, it was a very, very exciting year and probably the year I enjoyed the most out of my whole career as well. Personally, for me, it was a great year. Um, you know, it was my my fourth year living in Europe. So by, by then, I, I have kind of formed kind of my own entourage over there, which, which is very important. You know, I have my, my friends, I have the people surrounding me. I, I, I know how it works. So, you know, I also personally for me, it was a, a positive year and I was enjoying it very much up until the, the accident. And how did you find um, the, the composition, I suppose, like you said? Because um, I understand, of course, that the drivers, you know, whether it's Formula 1, Formula 2, etc., it's almost like a little family because you guys have known each other for so long and, and kind of raced with each other so long. But how did you find the competition? Because now, like you said, you're getting there. You're getting to those big leagues. Yeah, you know, every time I went up in category in, in single-seater cars as well, it's like the best from the lower categories go up. So each time the level of drivers is um, is higher and, and, and closer, you know, and as well the, the teams, everything is very, very competitive. So, you know, for example, in, in Formula 2 last year, we had out of the 20 drivers, I think probably 18 or 17 of those drivers had won uh, major junior championships or had been contenders in, in junior championships. And in a way they had, um, each of them had their, their own like little chance of, of getting to F1 where, one way or another. So that, that's pretty crazy, you know, and, and many, many of them are, are tightly linked with F1 teams. Many of them are even, you know, third drivers, simulator drivers, which was my case with Alfa Romeo. So it's really like the, 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 the top, 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 uh, the cherry on, on, on the cake that really gets up to that stage because they're the next ones that are going to, going to go up. So, um, it, it was cool. It was cool to be in there and, and also to, to learn a lot. You know, it was a, a year full of learning for me. Uh, not only a new car and, and the fastest car I had driven until then, but also to learn from, from drivers that I was racing against. You know, there's a lot of very, very talented people in the junior categories. And unfortunately, uh, most of them will not even make it to F1 and then they go to the other categories, but there's a lot of talent in, in there. Yeah. Like I said, and I know that you are definitely a part of that talent. A lot of people had their eye on you, I guess, of course, up until that crash that unfortunately we do have to revisit just a little bit that that tragically claimed the lives of um, Antoine Huber. I remember, I still don't even think I can find the words to, to describe it. You know, it's kind of, you, you look back at it and just go, did, did that really happen? You know, and, and for you, just what was, what was that like? Yeah, it was, it was shocking. Um, and really hard to, to digest the, the whole thing, you know, 
uh, at first I couldn't really process what what had happened. Then it w- it was scary. It was scary in the moment the the, the crash, uh, you know, the pain, pulling myself out of the car. Everything was really like uh, surreal, like a, a very very bad nightmare. Um, and then, but it's a nightmare that you, you never wake up from. So you have to deal with it, you know? So the whole process of, of dealing with that and eventually finding out that, uh, Antoine had passed and everything was just, it was very sad, you know, very, very sad and, and just unbelievable. You know, I never thought, uh, anything like this could happen, especially, you know, with with the modern times, Formula One uh, cars are so safe, and and all the categories below that, they're becoming so safe that you rarely see even small injuries in in big crashes. You know, I've had massive, massive crashes, and I never came out with more than a scratch. Um, so to actually nearly have two fatalities, and and to lose someone that was a friend uh, of mine, and and also my injuries, you know, and, and the pain I went through and all that was a very traumatic experience. I don't remember because you, uh, I mean, it, it was kind of chilling to hear you describe it, I suppose, in, a, in, in another interview where you said that um, people probably thought that you had at least been knocked out during that time. And that with the adrenaline going, you, you don't feel anything, but you actually were feeling it, that you had to ask the, the, the paramedics to put you out. Yeah, yeah, like, um, so the, the crash was obviously a really, really heavy impact with a lot of Gs. I think it was nearly 70 Gs on, on, on my car and even more in, in Antoine's car. Uh, so that's, that's really crazy, you know, like really, really crazy. So I don't know how I didn't pass out. To be fair, I kind of wish I would have passed out. Um, but no, I was fully conscious and, the, the thing that really scared me in, in that moment was that usually, like you said, with the amount of adrenaline we have, you don't feel pain at all. Like, like I told you, I've had big crashes where I walk out and then three hours later, I cannot get up from my bed from, from the pain. And in that moment, I didn't feel anything. So what scared me was that immediately uh, the pain, the shooting pain I felt on my legs, uh, I knew something was seriously wrong. Um, and, and initially I, I was convinced I had lost the legs, uh, right then, then and there, um, because I, I just felt massive pain, but I couldn't move them, uh, because obviously they were just hanging on from the skin. Um, so yeah, it, it was really scary and, and I kind of went into a state of shock, uh, because of the adrenaline plus the pain, plus also the, the impact, you know, I couldn't breathe because of, you know, my chest took a huge impact as well. So it was just this whole combination that, you know, it was, it was really scary, really, really scary. Yeah. And then I know you were, you, you said you were basically put in the coma for about two, three weeks, wasn't it? So coming out of it, um, what was, when everything kind of sunk in, what was, what was just the process to, to come to realization of what exactly just happened? Yeah. Like I I had, um, a long failure. I think it was on the fourth day after my crash. So I, I had to get under the ECMO machine, which is like, um, uh, an, a lung, like a machine that works as your lungs basically. Uh, and, and I was in the coma for two weeks. So when, when I woke up from that, my subconscious knew what was going on. Like, uh, you know, I knew I had been in an accident. 
uh, I knew my legs were destroyed and everything. What I didn't really remember was what had put me into the into the coma. So you know, there was it was a, a long process of weeks of really my parents taking me through everything, and, and also when you wake up from an induced coma, the drugs that were put into your system to keep you in that state of of um, you know so sedated and, and out of it. Um, you get withdrawals from those drugs for around four or five days after the, the coma. So, you know, I was really, I was hallucinating for four days straight. So you couldn't really have a conversation with me. Uh, I was in, in a different world pretty much and very high fevers. Uh, so it was tough. It was tough. And little by little, you kind of start getting a grasp of reality. And my parents were taking me through everything and I had to, you know, my, my subconsciousness knew Antoine had, had died, but I, I kind of had to ask again because I wasn't sure what was real or what was in, in my hallucinations anymore. So it was a very strange uh, process. I remember that time too. Um, of course, after that, it was it was very a surreal time. Like it was a touchy time, of course, in, in motorsports, but it was beautiful to see how everyone kind of came together to, to rally behind you, of course, with, you know, rehab and whatnot and, and, and your further progression. I know you said that you got a bunch of messages and, and visits as well from a number of people who, you know, who kind of stood out in your mind that really, I guess, touched you to, to see the messages from and visits. Um, many people, like you said, I think, uh, we showed that as a community, um, racing drivers are, are very much like a, a big family. Um, and, you know, for us in F1, F2, and F3, we're kind of traveling the world together for the whole season. And, and we usually see each other more than we see our own families. Um, and, and that goes as well with, with our teams and, and everyone around us. So, yeah, I, I think it was a big hit for the paddock in general. Everyone was, was very much in shock. Uh, and I had a lot of people from inside the paddock uh, worry about me, which... Probably we weren't so close before, you know, like uh, there were people that, that were there, but we weren't really close and we have become much closer uh, from this. So, so that's nice. And, and I had obviously visits that impacted me a lot. For example, Billy Munger, he's uh, the, the guy that lost both of his legs in a Formula 4 crash, I think two or three years ago. And uh, he was very much behind me throughout the whole process. Uh, he came to visit me in the hospital and, you know, I, I felt with him, we had a very strong connection because of what we, we both were, had been going through, you know, he knew exactly how I felt and, and he was a, a very big inspiration because he's actually racing again. Um, so that was always kind of my, my benchmark to say, okay, you know, I can get through this and, and I can come back. And uh, so that, that was very important. And when you were, you know, when finally the the worst had passed and it looked like you were definitely out of the woods and, you know, there was a rehab plan ready to start. What was the original prognosis that the that the doctors um, had for you? Because I know you had said first it was just to see if you could even use your leg again and then even not sure if once you could, they would know if you could even use your ankle again. Yeah, so the, for me, I never really got a, a solid prognosis you know like it was it, and it still is very step-by-step step wise because 
the the injuries I, I had to to my right leg especially were so severe that you know in the beginning um a few weeks after the crash we were just focused on trying to save the leg because it was so bad that they even gave me the option of uh, an amputation um then so i opted to save it and it seemed like that went well but it was a very stressful like three week period to see if the leg basically my if my body accepted the leg or, or or dismissed it you know so it was three weeks of just waiting to see if the leg turned blue and fell off pretty much um so so it was a long long process and, and kind of at each checkpoint we would look at the next um prognostic and, and what to expect and what was the best outcome and the worst outcome so you know when i left the hospital in, in london this was uh in november they told me that probably would take me around uh, five to six months between I could be walking in crutches again and, and using my left leg more normally. Because also my left leg was pretty banged up, not nearly as bad as the right one, but it still needed a lot of, of recovery and rehab. Um, and they told me that to, to be like, you know, in, in their opinion, if I could walk within one and a half years to two years, that would be a good a good outcome, um, and that was in the case that I could everything went okay with the leg and I could save the leg because there was still a lot to be done for that leg to be ready to to walk. Um, so really, you know, I, I I was very blunt with them. I said, you know, when can I drive again if, if I want to drive? <laughs> and they said not before two years, and this was in November. Uh, but looking at how I've been progressing and, and really in the back of my mind, I always aimed for half of that time. So I put myself as a goal to drive again this November and looking how it has all progressed up until now. I think I will not be driving this November, but probably sometime early next year if everything goes well. So that's still almost a year um, ahead of, of the prognostic that the doctors told me. And, you know, I was, I was in crutches, I think, Three weeks after they told me it would take me six months, and I am walking, nearly walking now, uh, and it's been seven and a half months, and they told me it would take like a year and a half, so it's going okay from that sense. I mean, I think probably a lot to do with that definitely has to do with your, your, I suppose, mental attitude to it, like you've always seemed so positive, and it's almost, from an outsider looking in, it's, it's hard to think of how... And I mean, I'm going to ask you, how did you not, I suppose, fall out of love with it during that time? Did you ever have any doubt that, you know, maybe I don't really want to get into that car again? Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. Especially in, in the very beginning when I was still going through the, the worst parts and, and everything was very uncertain. Um, you know, I didn't really, I couldn't care less about racing in, in that point. All I cared about was uh, what my life in general was going to look from that moment on and, and what my future was as, as a, as a human being. Um, but, but once that kind of, you know, I think it was both a, a physical and mental process because physically we started having a, a better idea of what were going to be my, my problems in the future and, and what I could expect kind of. Um, but also mentally, you know, the more time I had to think about, uh, the, the more time it gave me to really plan out what I wanted to do uh, in, in my life. And uh, really was for me was a chance. It could have been a chance to 
kind of get a clean slate and start over and, you know, maybe go study, become a DJ. Uh, Probably nothing with sports. (laughs) That was my only limitation because my legs are never going to be 100% again. Uh, But apart from that, I could have really chosen anything. But, um, you know, racing is really what I love. And it it only took me a few days to to realize that I wasn't going to lose my love for racing that, that easily. And uh, in a way, I think I needed a challenge to, to motivate myself to do the rehab and, and the long journey that, that I have ahead of me. And uh, coming back to racing in a way is, is a, a challenge that really motivates me and it keeps me in a positive mind frame. So, so that's, that's part of the reason why this, important is very, this comeback is very important for me. And then, uh, of course, as we say, if we call this a little, a little pit stop, um, for you in your career, you know, I mean, behind every good pit stop, there's a fabulous team behind there. And you clearly definitely must have one who, who was there for you this whole time, who's still there for you this whole time that just literally keeps you on that, on that path. Oh, my parents and, and, and my, my siblings, my, my family in general, uh, they, they have been really key uh, to, to everything. My parents were by my side for the two and a half months I was in in the in hospitals around London and at first in Belgium as well. And their love for the sport is still there. No, <laughs> no, no. That's a that's a no. that's a different story. Uh, no, definitely not. They're they're very scared, and uh, for sure, it's it's very hard for them to to know that I want to come back. Um, I think. Uh, every parent probably understands them. I understand them, you know, but, but I think they, you know, they know how important this is for me and, uh, they know they, they're not going to be able to keep me from it if, if that's what I want. If, when, when I want something in life, very few things can keep me away from it. And, and they know that. And, and at the, at the end, you know, they're just more focused on supporting me in whatever I need right now. And, and we'll deal about the future later, kind of. That's, that's what we're doing at the moment. And with the amazing progress that, you know, you have made, especially given last night's walk, we're going to call it, because I think it definitely was, what's the, what's rehab looking like now onwards? Um, so a lot of work on, on that walking, basically, that's the, my next big, big goal is to be able to, to walk properly. Um, do they challenge you like a certain amount a day or do you just put that challenge kind of on yourself what i found with um with all this medical stuff is that really you are the one that has to push yourself um there doctors are always very conservative uh many therapists are very conservative as well and and really you you have to to challenge yourself if, if not you know you can go as fast or as low as as basically you put your your mind to and Obviously, it's important not to rush everything and, and kind of do something stupid and, and get go back on, on a couple steps by refracturing something. But as long as you're just smart and, and you hear the doctor's advice, uh, you're the one that really has to, to put in the work because uh, it's your body at the end of the day. Um, and, and you're also one, one thing I've noticed is you're the one that really feels what's going on inside, you know, and you, you have to trust uh, those instincts. So, um, you know, it's, it's basically me kind of telling my, my therapist or the people around me that are helping me, even my family, they help me sometimes, uh, what I want to, to do. And, and, and that's how it works. So 
you know, like now I got cleared a week ago by my doctor to try to walk. He said it's going to be very hard and, and painful and, and it is, it is very, very painful, but medically I'm cleared, you know, so I know I'm not going to break something else if, if I do it. So now my challenge is just to keep working on that ankle and, and keep regaining the strength until I'm able to, to walk by, by myself. And there was something else that I know, you, like we touched on, that said you've been doing um, to keep yourself busy. I saw that you were a part of the eSports. It was a Chinese virtual Grand Prix, weren't you? And it was up against the life of like Charles Leclerc, Alex Albon was in there. You know, what was that like? And are you going to plan to keep, you know, doing these series? Yeah, <laughs> it, it was it was fun. It was very fun. Um, and it was cool to race with, with Charles and Alex and, you know, we had Guan Yuzhu and Deletras who are F2 drivers as well. Uh, and I really know, um, all of the guys that were racing there personally. Um, so it was, it was funny because we, we were practicing, you know, a few days before and uh, talking via, via Discord on the PC while we were racing and crashing into each other. So it's really, uh, a lot of fun and, and, like like uh, I told in the beginning, I think uh, I'm very lucky that I'm able to do it. And for sure, I want to, to keep doing it. It's not up to me because I was racing for, for Alfa Romeo. So they have to, to tell me um, if I'm, I'm okay to do the next one. Obviously, if, if Kimi uh, decides to get a sim, they're not going to put me in, in his seat. But as long as that, that seat is open, I think it'll be mine. So... Um, yeah, it's just a lot of fun, but there's, there's other championships I've been doing apart from the F1 championship. Um, and even just organizing races with, with my friends, like the local races and we just get together. And I've also gotten into the streaming world, uh, on Twitch lately, which is something I thought I was never going to do in my life. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's a positive thing, but I, I don't recognize myself at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think a lot of people started getting on Twitch um, in this quarantine oh. times. A lot of people are turning into YouTube stars and whatnot. Everyone's everyone's trying to be like Lando Norris on Twitch now because his Twitch's yeah. been pretty cool. His setup is amazing though. Yeah, I mean, yeah. no, they're very into it, and like <laughs> Charles as well. Now, I mean, the thing is, these guys, I think they have too much time on their hands. Like, if I'm honest with you, it's crazy. <laughs> There, every time I'm online, like Charles is playing, Lando is playing, George and, and Alex Alvin are playing. Like, I think they don't do anything else all day. Like me, I'm, I'm studying, you know, I have my rehab. I, I don't know. Like I, I thought I didn't have a life, but I see I'm not the only one. So it's, it's <laughs> happens to the most of us. Everybody's, everybody's struggling to find out what to do with their time. But I think yeah. you're right that we definitely have too much time on our hands. And then, I mean, with you saying that, I guess final question is, now, I, I know it's hard to guess or estimate when we can possibly have a season again because everyone's, of course, taking this day by day with coronavirus and whatnot. You see some other sports like um, in football, the Dutch League, you know, has been suspended until September now. Um, yeah. There's constant talk of whether doing races behind closed doors, two at Silverstone, back-to-back weekends. You know just the kind of force it takes to to move formula one teams from race to race you know what do you want done just even as somebody involved in it and just a lover of the sport it's really hard um to say because we don't know where the world is going to be in a month's time you know with with the lockdowns how the virus progresses and, and everything so i think in an ideal world um 
the, the infection rates everywhere will, will start going down due to the lockdown we've been doing this, this past month, month and a half. Um, and hopefully soon we, we can start getting close to door races. I don't think there will be normal races with, with thousands of people in it at all this year. That I'm sure about. Uh, but even if we can just get closed door racing, that's definitely better than nothing. And I think, you know, it's, it's a very tough situation for, for the sport because from one side, we don't want to compromise anything safety wise, um, for, for the people there, for the drivers and, and world health in, in general. At the end, to move a, a circus that big, it's, it's very risky, uh, you know, to, to get the virus inside the circus and then just spread it all around. So, they have to be very careful, but on the other side, the sport is taking a big, a big hit, you know, and if we continue this way, maybe there will not be a sport to come back to in a way, you know, that many teams are close to going bankrupt, um, and, and not just F1 in general, junior teams and in other categories as well. So it's a very, very tough call. I wouldn't want to be the FIA if right now, to be honest. Yeah. It's very true indeed. Well, Juan Manuel, thank you so much for chatting with us. I mean, whether you're trying to be or not, you are definitely an inspiration to so many of us, myself included. Um, amazing story. And I have no doubt that you'll be out there doing big things again very soon because it seems like you already are, judging by last night's video. And we'll keep an eye out on you, at least virtually now, to see you taking on um, some of the drivers for sure. 